Welcome to The 100 Podcast. It's Ed and Charlie here with you. Hope you're well. Today, we are doing our first in-season review. We are exactly a week into the tournament at the moment of recording. So it feels like a good time to kind of go through our thoughts on some of the teams, some of the tactics, but also just how we think the competition is going. So yeah, that's what we're going to do. Charlie, how are you doing? How are you feeling today? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. I'm good. Um, I've been really enjoying the tournament so far. It's been really fun to see and I'm looking forward to talking about it, really. I think there's plenty of talking points for us to get stuck into, so I'm happy to get going. Yeah, and we touched on this briefly during the mailbag, but we were at the first ever game of the 100, obviously the Oval Invincibles versus the Manchester Originals and the Women's 100. I wanted to go back on that and just touch a bit more on our experience at the game. As we said, obviously, we enjoyed it. We had a great time, but... I do want to touch on it because it was a really interesting experience being there. And I think very different to any cricket game I'd been to before. Yeah, it was notably different. I think the atmosphere in the ground was the first thing that I felt was notably different. I think the audience there was very different to other games I've seen in the past. Admittedly, this is one game. It's not necessarily the biggest sample size to go off, but it did feel different and it did feel warm and welcoming and I think at first the cricket did feel different obviously it was the very first hundred games so I didn't really know exactly how it was going to play out how, how it was going to pan out you know I was kind of unsure about that but I think it felt familiar very quickly I don't know about you Ed but for me I felt like I clicked a bit pretty quickly and by the end of it I left feeling like I'd seen something that was fresh but also familiar yeah, it did feel familiar and the cricket was really good. And we talked about this. The two sides playing were picked because they were two of the strongest sides. There was some fantastic cricket on show. That Dane Van Niekirk innings to win the game. Genuinely one of the best short format innings I've seen. From the position they were in, her Marazan cap obviously really put pressure on a really good Manchester Originals bowling attack. You know, that was a strong bowling attack. They have Sophie Eccleston there. They have Kate Cross there. Alex Hartley, World Cup winner there. I, that was a strong rolling attack and they put them under real pressure and it was a fantastic game. And for the cricket side of it, fantastic. I think the crowd was very different to what we'd usually see. And I think it is different, obviously, that the women's tournament is going to have a slightly more family-friendly feel than the men's tournament. That's just how women's cricket is. But it did feel like a different atmosphere to the one I've been at, maybe for the Kia Super League beforehand. And, you know, it wasn't just like a ultra-friendly, all, you know, music-focused thing. The cricket was compelling, and people were compelled by the cricket, and the cheers and the the interest in the game was really there. So, yeah, it did feel very family-friendly, but also it felt like proper cricket. It did feel like proper cricket. It, it was. You know, the standard was very high. I really enjoyed the game. As I said earlier, I do think it took me a little while to fully get with the format, I think, but that's fairly understandable. I think that's pretty true of everyone in the ground. I think it was a little bit quieter at first. I think there was a little bit of, you know, time there and adjustment period. But once that clicked, it just felt like a really fun game of cricket to watch. The standard was good. It was entertaining. And just putting aside any of the other window dressing, any of the more aesthetic entertainment-based stuff, the mileage on that may vary, but the cricket itself was undeniably very good and I had a great time. Yeah, and there are a lot of families at the ground. There are a lot of families with kids who've clearly not gone to see cricket before. There was a family two or three rows in front of us. And at first, the kids looked very bewildered by the cricket and much more interested in their fish and chips. But then by the end of the game, when it was 20 runs needed, when that Matty Villiers shot one for six, which is fantastic, by the way, everyone was lifted and they felt lifted and they were like it, they were really entranced by it. And there are a lot of families there. I know Jared Kimber, the, the journalist, took his family. He has a really good YouTube piece in it, and he felt it was 
a, a nice atmosphere to be there. And it was a nice atmosphere. It was a friendly atmosphere. And I thought that it, I just really enjoyed the game. And I think it was nice. And I think you can have your debates about whatever you want about the 100. I think it is only a positive for the women's game. And I think that is a real, really strong start for the tournament. I can only agree. I could at 100%. Pretty much the best start the ECB could have hoped for, I think, cricket-wise, atmosphere-wise. I think that's bang on what they wanted. I think they'll be chuffed with it. And I hope they can keep that up going forward because it was really good. Yeah, and we'll get on to the cricket in a moment because obviously we're, we're cricket-focused. We're not going to go too much into the ECB strategy. But let's talk uh, a bit about the crowds. This is this question that we missed on our mailbag, it came just a bit too late. It's from Michael McGrath on Twitter. Uh, he says, whilst the crowds and atmosphere seems to have been encouraging so far, aren't the people going to matches significantly different from the usual T20 Blast crowd? And I think that is an important question to ask because I think at the men's game, it did basically feel like a T20 Blast atmosphere, whereas at the women's game, it definitely felt that there were new people there. Yeah, I've not been to a men's game yet. I'm going to go on Tuesday, so I think that would be an interesting litmus test for me personally. But yeah, from what I've seen on Twitter and on from the TV, I think that's a pretty fair summary to make Ed look I, I think it's quite important for the ECB that they do encourage the audience I think that's a very very big factor this whole tournament and I think if they don't achieve that then I think it's fair to say that they have failed in one of their main objectives but I think time will tell yeah I think the men's atmosphere is from what we've seen from what we've heard and read and everything it does feel like there is obviously that T20 blast element and that's fine I don't think it's a bad thing to have a T20 blast crowd. It's not a problem if, if supporters go along, have a couple of drinks and sing. It's not the end of the world, as long as that the family atmosphere is maintained. But I do think that the vibes at the game do feel different. It does feel that there are new people getting into the game. And it's not just the crowds, by the way, that I think is important. It's the fact that it's on TV and it's on BBC TV. And the fact that those games were topping the numbers for the England-Pakistan series as well on BBC as well, by the way. It does feel like a whole new audience is being engaged there. So, yes, there is obviously that T20 Blast element, but I do think new fans are coming into the game. I think the 100, for any sins you might think it has, is bringing new fans to the game because it's on TV, and that's the power of TV. And we can, we can, yeah, we can say, oh, what if there's a T20 competition in the BBC? But there isn't. There's the 100. That's what it's here for. So, yes, I think that you know, there's definitely a kind of similar feeling for the men's tournament to the Blast. But equally, there seems to be a lot of families there. And there are a lot of people being engaged by this tournament that I don't think would be usually by the Blast. Yeah, and I think one thing I'd like to add to that is that this season, I think it's maybe a little harsh to expect, you know, a huge portion of, of the crowd to be brand new fans because it's the first tournament and predominantly the reach of that first tournament is going to be existing fans. Of course it is. That's just how it's going to work. People who know about 100 predominantly in its first season are going to be existing fans because that's where this course around a game is. But I think with it being on BBC TV, with the buzz that's being generated off the back of it being on primetime TV, on terrestrial TV, I think that, as you say, will encourage new fans to get, they'll get them into the game. And hopefully next season, you'll see the results of that. So I think it's probably a little too early to be judging either way. Yeah, it is. But 
we're just going to focus on the cricket, really. That's what we're going to do. Um, and uh, let's get stuck into the cricket. And the first question that I have down in my notes, Charlie, is a very vague one before we get into either game-specific and team-specific stuff, is what have we learned about this format so far? There are key differences to the T20, even though it is similar. These five, ten-ball flex-overs you can use, the slightly shorter power play. What do you think we've learned from the hundreds so far and what tactics are we seeing working and tactics that we're seeing not working the first thing i'd like to mention on this front is that i don't think it's necessarily a case of who has the strongest 11 on paper but more about how the teams are using that 11s and how they're lining up tactics wise because i think the southern brave a great example of a side who on paper squad wise are probably the strongest here but they've not delivering they lost two out of two and i think the way they've lined up and the way they've gone about their business has been poor i don't think they've used their resources very well necessarily so i think we're starting to see a situation where the tactics are a lot more important yeah and i think when you do have a new format and when you have a slightly shorter format you do gain that I guess, tactical advantage. And I think it's about using your resources correctly. And obviously we don't know everything about this. It's a small sample size. We can't make any sweeping judgment on teams yet, but we will come on to each of the teams and how we feel they've gone in a moment. But tactics-wise, I think what's been really interesting is that we've seen... I guess a, not a great deal of these 10 ball overs in general. Uh, I think there was a lot of talk about maybe you give your new ball bowler who swings the ball like a David Willey or a Luke Wood 10 in a row at the start. But what we've seen actually after a set of five, the fast bowlers have really struggled in the next five. It's been different in the women's game, I think, whereas a Marazan cat bowled very well with 10 in a row. And I think that's that's been more effective. I think the likes of David Willey and these guys who are given 10 at the top with the, with the new ball, the seamers are struggling because we're seeing their second set of five be far more expensive than their first set of five. So I think that's the first thing that I'm learning is that whilst it's a fun thing to think about of having David Willey bowl 15 of the 25 or 20 of the 25 in the power play, it is not reasonable. And we're seeing a lot more spinners have more success by bowling 10 in a row than seam bowlers. I don't necessarily think it's the way I expected it to play out, actually. But it does kind of make sense. I think maybe if the tournament progresses, we'll see we'll see teams maybe being a little bit more inclined to give fast bowlers the extra five. But I think it's one of those where it's a little bit too early to know for sure. I think teams are still kind of working out a little bit. You know, they've only had a couple of games each. I really think a lot of captains are just dipping their toes into the water a little bit here because it's still more or less slightly unknown quantity. You know, it's... It really is one of those things where we just don't know for sure. The sample size is still pretty small. I can see there being a few more temple spells in the power play with seamers. I can see that coming more towards the back end of the tournament. But that's just my prediction based on absolutely nothing at all. Yeah, I think that, for me, there's an element of this. And I think the first game ever, the Originals versus the Invincibles, the women's game on the Wednesday we went to, is a very good microcosm for how I think these five-ball over tactics are going to be used. So for the Invincibles, Marazan Cap bowled 10 in a row. She got Emma Lamb out in her second set of five. And because she's so dominant with the new ball, we really saw her succeed. Uh, well, the originals went about things very differently. They opened with Alex Hartley and they bowled a lot more sets of five. And I think that's because their attack has a little bit less mystery, if that makes sense. Uh, Kate Cross doesn't swing the new ball too much. Eccleston Hartley, the left arm spinner, is very good left arm spinner. There's not a great deal of sense of mystery there. I think that's what I would say. I think is when there is a spinner or in Madison Capps, there's a spinner who is really dominant, who is turning the ball both ways, is causing a lot of different problems that's when you should be using your 
set of five. So we've seen Amanda Jade Wellington bowl a set of 10 twice for the Southern Brave when Catherine Brunt could just not get her away. And I think the likes of Matt Parkinson, Rashid Khan, those kind of bowlers, who if they do get three, four dot balls in a row and you're putting a lot of pressure on your new batter, that's when you should be using it. So I think what I'm learning is that it very much, that 10 ball set should be used as a way of keeping momentum. So for example, Matt Parkinson's just bowled uh, five deliveries to Daniel Bell Drummond. That's a good matchup for the originals. At the other end, it's another right-hander. And they feel that Matt Parkinson, by bowling another five deliveries, has a good chance of taking a wicket through that matchup, but also just stopping Daniel Bell Drummond starting quickly. And if you can stop Daniel Bell Drummond starting quickly, that's really helpful. So that's the kind of thing that I'm learning from this. I think it's something that you should use as a momentum user, uh, and you should use it with a bowler, usually a slow bowler, uh, who has a positive matchup. And I think that's how we're going to see it used. And for me, that's how I would get, uh, get, get the best benefit out of using these 10 ball sets. I agree. I do see it as being a matchup thing. And I also think it's useful for specialists, maybe. Like power face specialists is a pretty obvious example of that. If you've got someone who swings it really nicely up top or sort of a spinner who can keep it really tight and tie you down, I think I can see that being a good argument for using 10 in a row. But it hasn't really happened as much as I thought it was going to yet, which is... It's, it's interesting, and I, I guess we'll have to wait and see why that is and if that changes. Yeah, because in the first game the Trent Rockets played, they went you know, really ultra-aggressive and bowled Luke Wood 10 balls at the top. And I love that because I love Luke Wood and I love what he offers. And I think when you get past the point where the ball's swinging, he isn't as effective. But his second set of five is expensive, and I do think that I just think Seaman's going to be overextended by it. So what I'm more interested in is a guy like Matt Carter, uh, a guy like Sam Patel, maybe. These guys who bowl spin in the power play and can bowl the positive matchups, right? For example, Trent Rockets versus Southern Brave. Let's say that you have Quinton de Kock at the crease alongside Devon Conway. And you have Matt Carter there, spinning the ball away from both left-handers. Quinton de Kock isn't the best starter against spin. Maybe at that point where you have that positive matchup, again, a guy like Matt Carter who's experienced like that and is a spinner who so isn't kind of putting so much on his body and tiring himself out that is where you can use that set of 10 more effectively. Because I do think that for seamers, it just isn't going to work. And especially the death, I think we talked about, oh, you could bowl 10, 15 of your gun death bowler right there. I don't think that's going to work because I just don't see how a seamer is going to be able to run in and bowl 10, 11 deliveries in a row in that high pressure situation to the best of their ability. So I think it's going to be very much a spinner related tactic moving forward. Yeah, I can absolutely see that. I think we will see some team occasionally, but like you say, it is a big ask. It's a big strain. And I think the few times seamers have done it in the tournament so far, they've typically been pretty expensive in the, the second five. So yeah, I, I do see it being a spinner's domain, but I guess we'll see. I'm, I'm just really curious about it, really. I don't really have any strong opinions about the way it's happened so far. I'm just very curious as an onlooker. Yeah, I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to adapt. It's going to change and teams are going to get used to the... Yeah, I get used to the tactics and we'll learn a lot more in the next few weeks. But let's move on to some fascinating team chats, shall we? Because there are some teams that have started off really well and some teams that have struggled early on. And as we expected, it's completely not what we imagined. Because <laughs> two games into the tournament, the Welsh Fire are 2-0. and And Charlie, they are our high-variance kings. We talked about this a lot in the preview. We thought their team was the weakest, but we said there is a chance that they can win this tournament because it's a high-variance approach. And when we talk about high-variance, what we mean by that is a very 
risk reward scenario where you are risking everything. It could go diabolically wrong. You could fall flat on your face and it could go disastrously, or you could absolutely blow opposition away. And that's basically what's happened to the Welsh Fire twice. They've put on really good totals and their bowling attack has had just enough to keep them in it. So two games in, this high variance approach is working. Obviously, we can't judge them after two games, but Charlie, the Welsh Fire have been really, really fun to watch. The Welsh Fire are absolutely hilarious. I've been mesmerised by them so far. I just don't understand anything about it. They just shouldn't work at all, yet they have been. The one thing I will say about the Welsh Fire's bowling attack, which I think is quite an interesting fact about them, is that I feel like their seam attack and their spin attack almost could be from different sides. I think their seam attack is surprisingly well suited to the Cardiff track. You've got bowlers there like Nisham temporarily, uh, Plunkett, David Payne, Jake Ball. These guys are all very good at bowling it into the pitch, using the surface, maybe taking the pace off it a little bit and just make it a little bit harder for the batsman to get it away, which at Cardiff is absolutely ideal. I think their spin attack, the likes of Kays Ahmed, Matty Critchley, Josh Cobb, I think they can go around the slower tracks such as Trent Bridge and Manchester and be very, very useful there. Um, they can turn the ball, they can bog you down very nicely. But I don't think they work together because I think the seam attack can be very vulnerable away from home. And I think their spin attack as we saw the other night, can be very expensive. At home, particularly at Cardiff, where the boundaries are short, and if they're not careful, they can just be hit for six straight back over the bowler's head with relative ease. So I feel like it's a bit of a mismatch there. And I think it's quite interesting to see the bowlers so completely <laughs> on different pages. It's so strange, but I'm kind of here for it. Yeah, and they're a very batter-dominated team, and we'll get on to the balance of the side and their batting in a minute, but I do find their bowling very interesting. The fact that the other night they opened up with Glenn Phillips, who is a wicketkeeper, and we know he bowls, but it was weird that they opened the bowling with him. And I know, obviously, Quinton de Cox there, they wanted that strong matchup, right? But Josh Cobb is there. Josh Cobb once took three for 13 in the T20 Blast final for Leicestershire. He's a very good bowler and you're giving it to a wicketkeeper and I found that weird especially when you had Josh Cobb at eight and not bowling and that's going to be about the balance of the side which we'll get onto in a minute but as you said I do think there is something with this bowling attack but it is fragile Matthew Critchley they're giving him the new ball I'm not sure that's the best role for him he's been okay so far but I don't think that's going to work I think Jimmy Neesham came off the other night 15 deliveries five runs three wickets that is never going to happen again. You cannot depend <laughs> on that happening from Jimmy Neesham. I love Jimmy, but I don't know how that happened. Um, but I have actually been really impressed with Jake Ball. And we said this going into the tournament. I, for a while, haven't been the biggest Jake Ball fan. I think in 2018-19, he really suffered. He lost some game time, in fact, Nottinghamshire. But since then, he's really come back. And I've been so impressed with how he's bowled at the death, how he's bowled at Cardiff. I think he's been fantastic. And I think that's a real positive sign for them. David Payne's been very good. Case Armad's been fantastic. So I think we are seeing slightly more from this bowling attack than we expected. But past David Payne, Jake Ball and Case Armad, they have a myriad of problems. I don't think you can ever, ever walk into a 100 match with your fourth and fifth bowlers being Jimmy Neesham, Matthew Critchley and Glenn Phillips. The fact that they did that and won a game astounds me. And I think the balance of that side is just not going to work long term. We said this in our team preview. We thought Liam Plunkett was the key because of what he offers in the middle overs and what he could offer on that Welsh fire a team just for balance's sake, I really don't think the way they went about it last night, whilst it worked, is ever going to work again. 
No, I think I think what I found really bizarre about that particular game is that Welsh Fire made a handful of potentially game losing mistakes and still won quite comfortably. <laughs> For example, Josh Cobb batting at eight didn't actually get to bat and didn't bowl a single ball. Him, Specialist fielder. He is in what I now call the Josh Bohannon role. Now, no disrespect <laughs> intended to Josh Bohannon, but he has filled that role at Lancashire a little bit where he bats at eight, doesn't bowl, and is basically a spare man. Now, in franchise cricket, you cannot afford to have a spare man. If you have a spare man in your team, you've essentially recruited poorly. There is no other way around it. You've recruited the team poorly if that is the team that you're having to field. I don't really get why Plunkett didn't play. I know he didn't have a great outing first time round, but I still think you need. You might as well play him over somebody who's not going to bowl or bat. Surely you want the extra bowling option if Cobb's not going to bowl. Although personally, with that 11, I would have bowled Josh Cobb in the power play alongside David Payne. I feel like if you have David Payne and he's not bowling up top, I don't understand why. I just don't get it because that's what he's so good at doing. At Gloucestershire, you'll see it all the time. He'll swing the ball. He'll be hard to get away. Why don't you open up with him? I don't get it. Yeah, they went for the positive matchup, I think is what they did. And I think there is a point where that is... You always want a positive matchup, but I think when you have David Payne... You always give the new ball to him. I think when you have a bowler that swings the ball, unless there is you know something you really believe that this you know, matchup is going to work, this is going to benefit you. When you're faced with a top order with James Vince and Quinton de Kock, you cannot bowl a wicketkeeper and think, right, let's try and play the matchup and try and keep him down. <laughs> You've got to try and get him out. And I don't think they went about that correctly. So that whole team is a mess. And that they are going to be interesting to watch now that Johnny Bairstow's leaving. Uh, obviously, Ben Duckett's been in fabulous form. Tom Banton is a class player. But I am interested to see how they get on without Johnny Bairstow because obviously he's their, he's their team, basically, I think. And the, the big scores they've been able to put on have really helped this bowling attack out. So it is a high-variance approach. It's high-risk, but I'm genuinely loving it. And I don't know if they're going to continue this. And I don't think they will. I don't think you could put out that team again and win. But it is very, very fun. I don't think they've got the squad depth to be particularly consistent. I think these two games might prove to be a bit of an outlier. I'd love to be proved wrong, in all honesty, because I think they're really fun to watch. But I just don't think the, the bench options are particularly strong. And I don't think their first team of Amolis is particularly strong either. I think the balance is very questionable. I don't really know what they're going to do when Bairstow goes. I would suspect that Duckett moves up to open. Josh Cobb will probably start into the middle order and maybe Plunkett comes in. But I don't really know. They'll probably surprise me in bringing someone like David Lloyd or... Ryan Higgins, maybe. I don't really know. And I think that's my one issue with the Welsh Fire is that I think whatever particular lineup you go for, there's an issue there. And I don't think that they're going to be able to get away with it as they have done these last two games. And you know what they're going to do, Charlie? They're going to back Lewis to ploy at three. That's what oh they're going to do. Oh, my gosh. That's what they're going to do. <laughs> no. This is the one thing. We, we talked about this in our, in our wildcard review of picking Lewis to ploy. I said they could back him at three, but I do think picking him up was a mistake still because they don't have a bowler to bring in. Really, and I think that hurts the balance to the side. But yeah, let's see how they do. And we'll come back to this in a few days' time, and maybe they kind of crash and burn disastrously. But regardless, it's fun. It is fun. And I just think, I'm just looking through this in my head, the one team I can think of who've had success with a, with a specialist fielder role, that extra man you talked about, I believe Mithun Manhas played that role for Chennai Super Kings in the IPL for a while. So I think it has been done, but it's not ideal. Let's move to the polar opposite of the Welsh Fire, the Southern Brave, the team that everybody has been lauding, a team that we thought was probably a top three squad in the competition. Charlie, two games in, they've been pretty bad. Their team selection's been a bit weird. 
They started off with three left-arm spinners and didn't play Jake Linton. Then they played Jake Linton, but they dropped George Garton on a pitch where there was a lot of bounce and, and some pace from him hitting the deck would have been useful, I think. So two games in, they've lost two, and I think they are still trying to work out who they are and how this really strong squad works. It's a really, really weird one. In the two games I've seen them play, they've kind of lacked an identity for me. I think their tactics have been really strange. And I'd like to start by pointing out their team selection for, the, for yesterday's game. They left out Liam Dawson, but kept Danny Briggs in. And I thought that was really strange because I think Dawson is a far superior power play operator at this point. And I think his batting gives him an extra dimension as well. I think leaving out Garton in favour of Overton was just bizarre. I know Overton did do quite well, but I don't think he's a particularly reliable T20 bowler. I think the stats will back me up on that one. And I think Garton just is so much more upside. I think he just brings a lot more to the table and also can bat better than they create everything too, in my opinion. Yes, I think bringing Lintot was a good idea, but even then, Derwey Rawlins misses out. I think that left him a battle light with Jordan at seven. And even some of their bowling choices I thought were really strange as well. I think bowling out to Mal Mills before the final 10 was very odd, especially when they then turned to Danny Briggs for the penultimate five. I thought that was so bizarre. When you have someone as good at the death as Timar Mills, why are you bowling him out before the last 10 balls in favour of Danny Briggs? That's so strange. So I think they've got a lot of work to do. I think the balance of the side is a little bit off. I still think they've got a great squad, but they need to know what they're doing a bit. Yeah, and Craig Overton, I think, was a good selection for that pitch. I think that's why he was brought in, and I see why they did it. But I think in that circumstance, you could just drop Briggs. Or yeah, even play Liam Dawson over Briggs. I think Liam Dawson offers more in the power play than Briggs. And if you're going to bowl someone with the first five and bring him on later on, I'd prefer to have Liam Dawson, I think. And you could even just play Rawlins and then have the two spinners and, and just bet on them to. So I don't know. I think they don't think they've worked out who they are yet. And Quinton Scott's only played one game. And Colin de Grandon going in for Andre Russell isn't, you know, isn't a, it, it's a loss, obviously. So I do think they're, they've had their early struggles. But, you know, Mahela J. Wardner is the king of starting a tournament badly, as are the Mumbai Indians. The Mumbai Indians never win the early games, they always peak. And here's the, here's the, here's the good old cricket coach's line for you they always peak at the right time, towards the end of the tournament. You always want to peak then. So, I do think the Southern Brave have talent and we can't judge them on a small sample size. But what I would say is they really need to take a look at how they're balancing the side. If Joffre's back by Friday, I think they hope he's back by Friday, that would be a big plus. But I think this batting lineup has a lot to be sorted. I do think they missed Delroy Rawlins. I just think they haven't found that completely perfect balance yet. And when they do, they could be really good. But for now, they're two games in. They've lost two games. And when you might in this tournament, have to win five games to go through. And it's a short tournament at games. They have to find their feet quickly. They're going to have to go on a run now. In such a short tournament, it's tough to do this. So they're in trouble early. Yeah, I agree. I think it's going to be even harder because I suspect we're going to see a fair few more changes in the next couple of games to them as well. I still think they're trying to work out what that strongest 11 is. Uh, and as we all know, dropping and changing teams can make it difficult to get a run of form going because roles are changing positions are changing players are a little bit unsure about what they're doing and I think that's pretty clear right now I think when you've got a lineup where you're relying on calling the grand home to bowl overs in this format of the game I think you've maybe made a selection mistake there because I don't think he's a great T20 bowler and he's a terrible T20 that. bowler he's a terrible yeah. I love Colin but he is <laughs> there is no more diametrically opposed bowler in test cricket and T20 cricket than Colin de Graham on in history right his test economy rate is about 2.41 I believe Keeps on a really tough line. He's tough to get away. If you remember the 2019 World Cup final, really tough to get away there. In T20 cricket, he is bad. 
Like his, his economy rate is in like the mid, mid nine point whatever. So it's like 9.4 or something. He's not a good T20 bowler. And as much as I like Colin, there is no point where I'd ever throw him the ball. You know, I'd have to have a bowler injured or something. So I do think there's an issue with that side. And I think I prefer to give Rawlins the ball over, over Collins, maybe getting in the side. But look, we'll, we'll see how they go. I think it's going to be tough for them, but maybe they go on a run. They have the quality to do so, and uh, we'll see how they get on. And also, they're not losing anyone to the test squad, which I think is important. So that will help them as well. Let's move on from the Southern Brave, if we're going to call them the Mumbai Indians, this tournament. Great squad, start badly, peak at the right time. Let's talk about the RCB of this tournament, the Northern Superchargers, stacked top order who score lots of runs very quickly quality leg spinner dodgy domestic seam attack and a captain who in the heat of the moment continuously makes really bad decisions the northern (laughs) superchargers are just rcb and ben stokes completely lost his nerve the other night against the trend rockets and they've started this tournament really badly as well yeah it's i'd actually like to say that the superchargers remind me a lot of brisbane heat uh, yeah, that's a good, that is a good take as well. That is a good take. Brisbane Heat, one of my all-time favourite banter franchise teams. Now, obviously, Darren Lehman connection is the first point of why they're very similar to the Heat. But they also have this incredible quality to have players who you think can win the game with the bat and just don't. They just collapse and lose their head. And every time you think, how the hell have they done that? How has that happened? So that's why, for me, the Brisbane Heat. I do think and I will maintain this, that they still have the personnel to do well in this tournament. I still believe that their batters can do very well for them here. And I do think that with Rashid, with Callum Parkinson and Majib, they've got a really strong spin attack too. But I just don't really think they're lining up in the way they should be. I think they've made a few head-scratching decisions. I think they're just playing their cricket the wrong way currently. They need Faf. Uh, that's what yeah. they need. Like They need a captain who knows what he's doing. I love Ben Stokes, but when the streaker came on, uh, in the middle of the game, he asked for a delivery to be rebowled, which had only gone for a single. He asked for re- to be rebowled, and Alex Hales smacked the ball down the ground. He dropped it for six. That is a mind-numbing decision. Why would you ask it to be rebowled if you just got a single? That's a positive win for you, and that was a bad decision. And I just think this team, and Brisbane Heat is a really good way of going about it. It is similar. They have the Bash brothers at the top. They have that dodgy seam attack again, who are all a bit too right arm. They do have David Willey, but it is very, I think there is a family in domestic uh, franchise cricket, Brisbane Heat, RCB, uh, the Northern Superchargers. They, They have a lot of similar coaches, a similar thinking, but also very similar bad results. I think they need to change something about that side. I think bringing in Callum Parkinson was a really good choice. I thought that worked really well. And that spin attack, as you said, Rashid, Majib, and Callum Parkinson worked brilliantly. But then they didn't bowl Callum Parkinson out, which I thought was a really strange decision because he bowled brilliantly all night. So I do think that team is in trouble. I'm not sure if Ben Stokes, this is going to sound really harsh, but I think Ben Stokes leaving it might not be the worst thing. It genuinely might not be the worst thing because they'll have, I don't know who's going to come in for him, but they'll have a different leader and they'll have, I I don't know, it might just calm the team down. Because he did cost them the game last night. It's harsh to say, and you want Ben Stokes in your lineup, but I I do think they need to sit down, calm down, and go about things a very different way. Yeah, I have to agree. I think they'll be making a couple of tweaks to their lineup. Personally, I know John Simpson pretty well the other day, but I don't necessarily know if he plays for me. I think they might want to give the gloves to Kola Cadmore potentially and bring in someone like Jordan Thompson, who offers you a bit of the ball, but more importantly, can 
give it a really, really big hit with a bat. Uh, they also have Dane Villas currently, which is a really bizarre one. Uh, one of the most funny narratives of the tournament so far, obviously signed for huge money in that 125k bracket in the original draft back in 2019 for their arch enemies, the Manchester Originals, before crossing the waters. There aren't any waters there, are they? Before crossing the, bla- the border uh, <laughs> over to, <laughs> over to, <laughs> to Headingley. And what I find quite funny is that they signed him as an OZ's replacement for Patrick Plessis and then didn't play him, which I think is probably the correct decision, in honesty. I don't really know what's happening there. But um, maybe he'll play the next game if Stokes goes out. I don't know. He shouldn't. John Simpson is a good keeper. He should play. I, I do believe that John Simpson should play. And we, we thought about this before the tournament. We did our predicted best 11, and we thought they wouldn't go with Simpson because they go for the batting. But I do think John Simpson is worth it. So... I don't know how they're going to change things, but I do think that they, they're they just so dependent. And here's my thing, Charlie. They have lots of talent, but there is a very easy way of going about attacking them, right? Adam Live is a fantastic cricketer. Chris Lynn, very destructive. You know what I'm doing first up on bowling spin? And you know your bowling spin, and you know they don't start as well against it. And it's a problem. You know your matchups throughout the team. You know how you're going to get after this bowling attack. I just think that there is, it's, there's a very easy blueprint for beating the Northern Superchargers, as good as that spin attack is. And what they really need to do next game is bowl 60 deliveries of spin. That's what they really need to do. There is a good team in there, as you said, but I think Darren Lehman is a limited coach, in my opinion. I don't think he's ever been a good T20 coach, really. I don't think we've ever seen him have a great deal of success in T20 cricket to an extent where I've never seen him take a roster and make it considerably better than it is, is my point. So I think they're a limited team currently. I don't know what they can change, but they do have the ingredients there with that great spin attack and a very destructive batting order. And Harry Brook, by the way, has been fantastic. We love Harry, our boy. Go check out our interview with him. He's been brilliant, one of the breakout stars of the tournament. So they have a lot there, but I think the Northern Superchargers are limited at the moment, and they are the RCB of this tournament. And better news, the Northern Superchargers women are 2-0, and uh, Jemima Rodriguez, Charlie, has been basically the player of the tournament. Oh, she's been absolutely superb to watch. I've been loving watching her bat. She's just so good, so classy. She is classy, and that 92 not out against the Welsh Fire was an incredible innings. The Welsh Fire collapsed in the first innings. They didn't put on the total they should have, and then they lost some early wickets, but she was just fantastic. That, that was a genuinely incredible innings. I watched it live, and I was just mesmerised. And then she obviously played a match-winning knock against the Trent Rockets the other day as well. So I think that's been a real positive. She, for me, has been the player of the tournament. I've loved watching a bat. And uh, I thought that Northern Superchars women's lineup was a decent side, but they did need someone like Jemima Rodriguez to kind of take, you know, take on the mantle and, uh, and score runs and win games for them. And the fact they have a match winner like that has been really great. So Jamal Rodriguez really has been, for me, the player of the tournament. She's been in fantastic touch. And that has been really, really brilliant to watch. And we're going to do some separate women's team reviews as well. But there's a couple of things I wanted to mention in terms of the tournament, Charlie. And the, the start of that was the Trent Rockets. Because I find their, their, their lineup very intriguing. And we're going to get onto a couple of other teams that I like as well, but the Trent Rockets I find really intriguing. You look at their bowling attack, you have Joe Johnson, right, who's opening the batting for them and bowling. Catherine Brunt bats at four and opens the bowling. Nat Siver bats at three and will bowl 20 deliveries. Sarah Glenn will bowl 20 deliveries and bat seven. Catherine Bryce could bowl you 20 deliveries and should bat six. It feels like this whole team is too full of all-rounders and they haven't actually got the batting right because Catherine Brunt at four hasn't worked it just feels that they're so 
they're too top heavy and I think that they are going too aggressive at the top they're playing Tommy Joe Johnson at the top and she's being ultra aggressive and that's great and Catherine Brunt comes in at four and is a hitter of the ball I just feel they're not giving themselves the chance to build the innings correctly and I don't think that team dynamic is working yet it feels a little bit like they're too dependent on a handful of all-rounders who are basically trying to do everything, both the bat and the ball, and it just doesn't work. I don't think you can rely on that many all-rounders all the time because they're not always going to come off, and if they don't, you're probably going to struggle to win the game. So I think there may be a few specialists like both with the bat and with the ball. Yeah, and I think they lost the other day to the best team in the competition, in my mind, in the Southern Brave. I think they really are a fantastic cricket team. And I think that that top order they possess is so destructive. Schmitty Mandana, Danny Wyatt, Sophia Dunkley, Stefani Taylor, Maya Boucher, that top five is electric. And then when Amanda Jade Wellington, the leggy, they've got Lauren Bell and Anya Shrubsall, who've been fantastic, Lauren Bell. We talked about her pre-tournament. I said she's going to break out. She has broken out. So, yeah, I, I think that Trent Rockets lineup is weird. Now, I'm excited to see how they tinker with it because there's lots of stars there. But, yeah, I just love watching the Southern Brave play. As I said, we'll get on to that in, in a different episode, but I just wanted to talk about the Southern Braves. I think they are the easy favourites now. I look at that side and it, it, they are dominant. It's not just a dominant roster like the Southern Brave men. They've got that. They've got their balance correct, and I think that's fabulous. Let's move on to the Birmingham Phoenix, Charlie. They are a team that we love, obviously. Uh, they've had one game against the Spirit, which they won, one game against the Originals, so they got smacked. It does feel like they're a bit all or nothing. And we touched upon this in our mailbag, but they do seem like they're going to go really well one game, and then another game, they can just collapse. And I think they're probably going to be okay with that, just given the way they've set up, I think they're probably expecting that's how they're going to go. I think that is just something you have to expect a little bit when you play that way. If you're prioritising boundaries that highly and you're asking your batsman just to go and swing and try and score as many boundaries as you possibly can, then there's always going to be days where a lot of batsmen don't come off and you're going to get bowled out cheaply, as happened the other day. That's going to happen. I guess, really, the key for them is how do they minimise that? How do they make sure that their approach comes off more often than not? Because if, they, if it does come off more often than not, then I think they could have a real shot at doing very well in this tournament. If it doesn't, then they could finish bottom. I think that's just one of the teams they are. They are, as you say, all or nothing. And it's interesting. It's really, really interesting. I think for me, they're one of the more intriguing teams in this tournament just because of that dynamic. Yeah, I think when we talk about the Birmingham Phoenix, we have to talk about process, not results. We have to talk about the way they're going about it because when you do go for that high boundary percentage where playing, when you do go aggressive, it's not going to work every time. And you can't win every game of cricket you play. And teams shouldn't try and win every game of cricket you play because that's a fool's errand. What you want to do is win enough games to finish third. Now, that's all you need to do in this tournament. Now, I do think that the other day against the Manchester Originals where they are skittled for 87, they come off there they get 130, they win that game. And it could have come off. But I do think if they're just on that surface, if they could have hung on a bit more and got 110, 115, they could have been in that game. So I am interested to see how they go. And I, I, I have enjoyed watching them. I think they've got a good bowling attack. I think they've got a good team balance there. I think they can. They, they have the kind of rotational pieces to change things as well. So I am actually really excited to see how they go. But I we talk about this in the mailbag, but I, I do think that process is important about the phoenix and uh, we'll get onto them later in the tournaments they are fascinating but i think we'll see them continue to have success and it won't be every game and maybe it comes off a bit disastrously at times but i do think the process they are using 
is good. So I will see. It's an interesting side to watch, and I'm intrigued to see how they approach the rest of the tournament. Yeah, one thing I'd just like to say about the Phoenix before we move on to other sides here is that I feel like the squad they have assembled isn't necessarily gelling currently with, I think, the way that Vittori and the coaching staff want to play. I think there might be a little bit of uh, friction there. That's just my opinion. But just looking at Vittori's previous sides and looking at this squad, I'm not sure it's the best match. I do believe Andrew McDonald would make a better fit of the squad. Yeah, I think it's interesting because there's a definitely a Vittori DNA and it's worked at times in the past and it's not worked at the times in the past. And I do think that he's a good cricket mind, but I do think there are some questionable decisions in their 11. For example, Daniel Baldrum batting at five. For me, that's not going to work. I love DBD, fantastic cricketer. If you opened up with him, maybe I'd be happier about it, but I don't think you can put him at five in a T20 side. And that is an issue, as we've talked about this, the fact that everybody bats at the top of the order. All the good batters bat at the top of the order and DBD is a good player. But I do think they could have played a Smead there instead. And I think that might have been a more sensible choice because I just think DBD does look a bit worried against spin and the middle overs. And yeah, I just think that that side isn't quite balanced yet. They will find that balance. I do think they will, but I just think there's just a little bit of tinkering that could be done because they want Liam Livingston to bat high up because you want Liam Livingston to face as many deliveries as possible. You want Moeen Alley to bat high up because you want Moeen Alley to play as many deliveries as possible, but then you are putting DBD in a weird situation. So yeah, I agree with you. I think that Vittori will have to work out how that batting order is going to be used more efficiently. I do think he's going to have done a good job with the bowling attack. I think that's working, but I think there is a couple of tinkers he needs to do with that batting team. Right, let's go. We're going to skip through the next couple because I think we've talked about them before a lot. There's two categories of teams here. The Originals and the Rockets are in one, and the London Spirit and the Oval Invincibles are in the other. Let's start with the Originals and the Rockets. The Originals, as we said, are a team that are really going to depend on home advantage, and they're going to use that, and they did against the Birmingham Phoenix. And they're going to be very disappointed, I think, today. We're recording this in the afternoon. It seems like their home game against the Northern Superchargers is going to be rained off. And that is going to be a huge, huge loss for them. They want to win every single possible game they can at home. And that's going to be a miss for them. But they've done well with their home advantage. And the Trent Rockets also, I think, have done well in their opening two games in terms of how they've approached using their home advantage. And I actually think the fact that they brought Matt Carter in the other day was was really good for them. And I think they are starting to understand better how to use their squad. So these are two teams, Charlie. Trent Rockets have won both games. Originals are one and one. That I think are starting to understand how to use their resources correctly and are having early success in the tournament. Yeah, I've been very impressed with both these sides, actually. Rockets have won two out of two and thoroughly deserved, in my opinion. I think they've just built a very strong squad there for the home conditions. And as we said, you know, if you can win your games at home, then you're probably going to go through to the top three. So I think they've gone about the business very well. I think they've got batsmen who are pretty good at batting on slower pitches and not necessarily hitting too hard. I think, obviously, the boundary percentage is such a, a valuable statistic. But I think in guys like Root and Milan, they've got players who don't have to do that. They can rotate a little bit more when the boundaries aren't there for the taking and they can keep scoring. And I don't necessarily think that's always a valuable quality, but I think on some of the slower pitches we've seen in this tournament thus far, 
I do think it can be useful, and I think we've seen it be useful. And obviously, the original spin attack has been very, very good. I've been particularly impressed by Calvin Harrison and Tom Hartley, actually. Obviously, Matt Parkinson is quality and superb, and we waxed lyrical about him in the past. But I think in Hartley and Harrison, you have two players who are maybe slightly lesser known, but have really come through and shown that they're, they're quality spinners, and they've done very well here. Harrison has really rapidly ascended through the ranks from essentially being a university student not really expecting to have much of a hope in the professional game to now playing in 100 and playing under Josh Butler's captaincy and doing incredibly well. Tom Hartley too, he's proving very, very useful both in the power play and depth. They're both really good cricketers and I think that the originals have recruited well and their tactics are very much spot on. Yeah, and we've talked a lot about the originals and we won't go on about them too much because we, we do enjoy the way they're built. I think Tom Hartley, we knew he was a very good cricketer going into this, but he was actually on the Wisdom Fantasy League he was the cheapest, I think the second cheapest bowler you could get. And he's been in my team in the Fantasy League, and that's why I'm top of the 100 Podcasts Premier League. But it does feel like he was a bit undervalued there. And we, we both really like Tom Hartley. I think he's a good player. And I, I think it's nice to see him get his shot. And the fact he's bowling difficult overs as well, which he's done for Lancashire for a long time, is great. I think, as I've made the point before, Calvin Harrison, as good as he's been, doesn't make it into my best original side when Colin Ackerman's back. So I think the value of having a bowler who turns it away from the left-handers is important, but been hugely impressed with Calvin Harrison. Before we move on to the, the two London teams, can we just talk about that that Trent Rockets game against the Superchargers? Well, we we picked a bit, we picked up up a bit in the in the Superchargers chat where we talked about Ben Stokes throwing away the game, but Goodness me, that was a fantastic finish. Matt Carter, Iceman, coming through. Alex Hales had a really tough start to his innings, but came through with a crucial 40. But, we and I was chatting to this with our friend Jack Butler, who's covering the Trent Rockets for the 100 Rising as a kind of writer. I talked about the fact that Rashid Khan batting at nine in the opening match was a crime against humanity. He came in at eight, which is still too low for him, I think, made 25 off 12, and he, I think, really changed that game. And it was just a remarkable finish. And I think it was another moment where actually we could see the cut through of the 100 to the fans. It was a fantastic finish, great atmosphere, and just wonderful cricket. And it's a game that I think will live in the memories of people who were there. I think it will. It's a superb finish. And I think it was a great advert for the game too. I, I agree with you on Rashid Khan. I think they could use him as a, a floating pinch hitter potentially at the spin because he's... He is a great finisher, uh, surprisingly undervalued in that role, I think. I think I don't think he's that far off being a genuine all-rounder at this point in T20 cricket. He's such a good hitter. Yeah, I think he is a genuine all-rounder. And I, I think a lot of people, when they see a really good hitter at seven or eight, let's get him up the order. I don't agree. I think Rashid Khan is very good at the death. And I think you just use him at seven or eight. And you can, you can move him up and down, depending. But the power he has, the way he hits, he, he has such power. It is very ms Dhoni at times, the way he uses the helicopter shot. He's a remarkable cricketer. And I think that getting him up the order would at times benefit the Rockets. But that was a remarkable game. I was very happy for Alex Hales. Obviously, he struggled, but he came through and it mattered most. And it was a compelling game of cricket. And the fact that you had Rashid Khan at nine in the first game says everything about this Trent Rocket side and the batting depth they have. So, yeah, Rashid Khan's box office. And Matty Carter, by the way, coming in at 10... Goodness me, that's sexy here. And Luke Wood, by the way, has two first-class hundreds at nine. They bat really deep. And yeah, that was a fantastic finish. And that, I think, is why teams are... are that's why teams want to bat down to nine or ten, right? That's why you don't necessarily want Chris Jordan starting as the kind of lower order at seven. You want Chris Jordan maybe down at eight or nine. 
that's the level of comfort and the kind of parachute you get there, the support you get there from the lower order. So yeah, that, that rocket side is fascinating and they're two and two. And I, th- I think that they will go well for the rest of this tournament. Yeah, I have to agree. I think right now, I think right now they're possibly my pick to win the whole thing. I think they're a really nicely balanced side. They'll lose route. I don't think that's necessarily a huge loss for them. I just think they've got so much depth there. Meaning, just to echo your batting depth thing, they had Lewis Gregory coming in at seven. And I think in domestic cricket, I still think that's very low for him. But it wasn't even the problem because they just had so many batters above him who were doing the job. So, look, I think they're a strong side. I think they could win it. I think they're certainly one of my hot favourites right now. Yeah, and I'm fascinated to see how they go. Joe Root will leave, of course, with uh, one delivery and uh, no runs under his belt. But he bowled very nicely. I do think, actually, they're going to miss Joe Root, the bowler. I thought he bowled very nicely. I don't want people to get too, like, Joe Root, he's going to bowl in the World T20. Hey, guys, let's go to the Ashes and play four seamers and Joe Root. It's going to be fine. No. Joe Root can do a job in T20 domestic cricket when he is utilised against the right matchups. Let's not get too excited. Okay, let's, let's, let's calm down a bit. But I did enjoy watching him bowl. We'll move on to the final two teams. It's the London teams. And we left them to last try because I don't think we've actually learned anything about either of these teams. I think they're exactly what we expected for better and for worse. Obviously, they had that London derby rained off. That's two. That's two local derbies rained off, Charlie. That's a disgrace. The, the rivalry's there. But... Let's start with the Oval Invincibles. They're exactly what we expected from a Tom Moody side. He's more of a low-variance approach. He will have a batting line who's going to put scores on the board, and they'll consistently put scores on the board. And then, like a Tom Moody team usually has, like the Sunrise Hyderabad, they have the best attack in the competition. They will stifle teams, and they don't have that high-variance approach. They're much more likely to go on consistent runs of wins. I do think that even though we've only seen them play one game and they've had a game rained off, I, I, they, for me, they are still the strongest team in the tournament. Uh, I think the way they've, they've gone about things and this kind of approach that Tom Moody has suits them down to the ground. Yeah, I, I agree. I do think in terms of 1-11, to 11, who's been playing lately, I think they have the strongest 11. And if you're talking about batting deep, well, the Invincibles really have that nailed down. I think in the first game that they played, well, the only game that they played so far, I believe Laurie Evans came in at seven, which really tells you all you need to know. They've got... I guess, floating hitters in Curran and Narine, who we've seen open up or come in at free. I don't know they'd always do that. I personally prefer to see Will Jacks opening up, but we'll see how that goes. I think that in, in having those pinch hitting options there, they do have a lot of bases covered depending on matchups and game situations and scenarios. Uh, and I think that will absolutely see them well. The bowling attack they have is also superb as well. They've got Tabray Shamji coming in soon, who I'm particularly excited to see. I think that's a great signing for them. Can't wait to see what he can do over at the Oval. But I do think they're a really strong side. I think they're pretty much exactly how I expected them to be. Very, very strong side, and I'm a big fan of them. Yeah, and Roy and Jacks, I think, would open up when you're not facing Tom Hartley, I think is probably the, the way they'd have gone about it. But it's nice that they can throw Curran and Ryan up there. And then they still have Billings, Colin Ingram, Laurie Evans, Tom Curran, down the order. I just find this team so fascinating and, and, and so... Brilliant. And then you talk about, oh, by the way, batting depth, the bowling depth. They used seven bowlers in the first game. Sam Curran, Saka Mahmood, Sunil Ryan, Reese Topley, Will Jacks, Nathan Salter, Tom Curran. They have so much depth everywhere. And I think this Tom Moody approach is fantastic. I think they've done a great job with this lineup. And I do think yeah, it's tough to tell because anything can happen in this tournament. They're still my favourites. The final teams go through. The London Spirit. I don't know what we've learned from them. So they've only played one game. 
And this is really interesting. That The first game was a mess. I actually didn't watch the game. I watched some of the first things, but I went out on anniversary dinner with my girlfriend to uh, Miller and Carter Steakhouse. It was very fancy, very nice. Had a lovely time. We were sat next to a stag do for half an hour. That was a nightmare. But I didn't actually watch much of this game. It was a fascinating build-up because we heard rumours that they were going to open the batting with Mohamed Nabi. And it lined up with what Shane Ward had said in interviews. And then he did something really bog standard, opened up with Zach Crawley. And, and the team was just weird. He didn't play Mason Crane. He only he didn't go in with the leg spinner. I don't know what that was about. Because we all thought Mason Crane would play. And he went in with, was it three seamers, Amir, Wood and Cullen, which we didn't expect to happen. We thought that he'd go for the spin attack. He didn't. And I don't know what we've learned, but it was just, was it just bland for you, Charlie? It felt bland to me. I don't know about you. It just it wasn't the show more than I expected. I was expecting funky things like Nabby opening the batting. And that wouldn't have been a great ploy, I don't think. It would have been very funny. But it just felt bland. It didn't feel like what a Shane Warne team should be, which is incredibly overly complicated and, and tough to understand, but should be very effective. Do you know what I mean? I do, I do. I do think it was a, an odd use of resources. You had to hand... I was very surprised to see you know, Mason Crane. Mason Crane was like the ultimate Shane Warne player mm. because he's a leg spinner. That's it. <laughs> but it seems <laughs> <Yes>. like... <laughs> but it just seems like such an obvious selection that he was going to play. And in the end, I think their team attack was pretty flat, I think. Mohamed Amir was not at his best. Blake Cullen did all right, but he's obviously young and experienced. Experience. He's not the finished product yet, although he will be very good in the future, I'm very sure. Chris Wood, operator. He well. Chris he Wood, well, I thought. Yeah. He did bow well. He did bow well. I'm not saying he didn't bow well. But I don't necessarily think that having the three seamers and no Mason Crane was the way to go with that squad. I do think I would have left out probably Cullen and gone for Crane myself. Um, I can only imagine that the whole Mohamed Nabi opening thing and Warney coming out and saying, well, just wait until you see how we use Mohamed Nabi, folks. I can only imagine that that was a weird double bluffing. Yeah, it must have been. The weird way we are going to use Mohamed Nabi is exactly the same way that everybody else uses him, but less creatively. <laughs> we're going to bowl him in the middle overs. Whoa, we're not going to open in the power play with him. I just, it's mental. I don't, I don't know why Blake Cullen was in that lineup. I like Blake Cullen. I think it's potential there, but I think you have a much higher benefit from having Mason Crane. He didn't bowl Joe Denley either, which I thought he would. If you're not going to have Crane in there, I thought he'd bowl Denley. It was weird. And the batting was fine. It was okay. I mean, Crawley batted nicely. Denley had a nice little cameo. Ravi couldn't get going. It just feels like this side isn't special. It doesn't feel like Warney has an imprint on it, and it doesn't feel like there is that magic to it, which we thought they would be. If he played three spinners and you had Nabby, Roloff, Crane, we thought there'd be magic. And especially with Amir and Chris Wood at the top, there just isn't that magic. And I'm left underwhelmed, personally. I have to agree. I just don't think that there's an identity there, which is really strange because I felt like it had a really strong identity on paper when, when that squad was announced. I think we all were pretty certain that they were going to go spin to win. They were going to have a load of spin options and it's going to bowl a lot of it and do well and they just haven't done that so far and it's so strange to see I know they only played one game but in, in the second game they did announce their squads and did, they did get a toss in before the game got called off and the team was unchanged and I thought that was just so strange to see not even Crane coming in they weren't even temp- tempted to tinker at all which for Shane Warne team is just bizarre so personally I'm struggling to see an identity I'm struggling to see a philosophy uh but I think they need to find one very quickly. Otherwise, I 
don't think they're going to be challengers for me. No. And uh, Dan Lawrence out now. He's off to the test side. They're calling up Joe Cracknell of Middlesex to replace him, which is nice because we thought he should have been their wildcard pick. We thought it had been a nice selection for them. So happy to see Joe Cracknell get a game. And best of luck to him. We're, we're, we're really fascinated by him as a cricketer. And we hope he does well. But yeah, I just think this London Spirit side is boring. I think that's the problem with it. And I think, I think they can find there is something there. They just have to tinker with it. So there we are. There's our first roundup done. We've gone through all the teams and the tactics that we felt about the tournament. We're going to do a roundup every few days in the competition and we'll continue to put out our interview podcast and some special podcasts. There's some really good stuff coming. But do check out what we've got out there already. Uh, yesterday, an interview with Tom Helm came out of the Birmingham Phoenix. We had some really good players on. Jake Linter, who made his debut for the Southern Brave the other day. We've had loads of analysts on, like Dan Weston of the Birmingham Phoenix, Freddie Wilde of the Oval Invincibles, Max Backhouse of the Manchester Originals. There's loads of fascinating stuff, so go check them out. Follow us on Twitter at Podcast 100. There's loads of good stuff there. If you want to send any suggestions or questions in for our mailbag, go to at Podcast 100 on Twitter. But thank you very much for listening to The 100 Podcast, and we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>